prepared. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is my sincere prayer that my words would not get in the way of your message. And I just pray that our hearts would be open to hear what your spirit has to teach us tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read just a brief portion from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36, and it's page 1179 in your pew Bibles. It's Matthew 26, starting in verse 36 through to verse 41. And it's the scene from the Garden of Gethsemane. And Matthew writes, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. The word of the Lord. This is a difficult passage for us to understand. How can Jesus, the one who told his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled, how can he be grieved and distressed? How can Jesus, the one who said, I and the Father are one, how can he say to his Father, not as I will, but as you will. As we try to wrap our minds around Jesus' words here, we are faced with some very deep questions. Questions like, what is Jesus really feeling and thinking here as he contemplates his death? Or questions like, could Jesus have avoided the cross? What enabled Jesus, the man, to choose to lay down his life? What motivated him? What sustained him? Where was his heart at? through all of this. As we seek to address these questions this evening, I hope that four truths uh, will become clear to us all. The first one is that Jesus is fully human. The second one is that Jesus lived his human life in perfect harmony with the Father. The third is that Jesus lived that life of harmony with the Father from his heart. And the fourth is that Jesus calls us to enter into that harmony with him and his Father. Tonight, I hope these truths become more than just academic statements. I hope that we can all see that what was happening at Gethsemane was that Jesus was opening up a window through which his very nature is revealed to us. And having caught this glimpse of who he is, it is my hope that we will find not only an intellectual basis for understanding him, but I pray that we will also gain a deepened appreciation and renewed love for God and a revived heart that is retuned to live in harmony with him and to be like Jesus. So let's start. First, Jesus is fully human. The first truth that I see revealed here at Gethsemane is that Jesus is fully human. 
there are three key evidences that make this clear to us. And they all start with a W. Jesus' woe, Jesus' will, and Jesus' weakness. First, consider Jesus' woe. That is Jesus' grief. Here in Gethsemane, Jesus opens his soul to his disciples and to us. And he lets us all know that his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Deeply grieved. In the Greek, it's, it's a compound word with two parts. Peri, meaning about or around. Here in the sense of surrounding or encompassing. And lupos, meaning grief or sorrow. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is surrounded by, encompassed by, sorrow. This was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy 700 years earlier, that Messiah, as we just read and sang, would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and that our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Our Messiah bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. This is the wonderful message of the cross for us. But tonight, we need to pause to remember the horror that this message carried for Jesus. And we need to pause over the truth that Jesus was a man, a man of sorrows, Isaiah said. Jesus was fully human. Some 33 years before Gethsemane, he was an infant. His parents loved and cared for him. He grew up. He got older. He developed physically and intellectually and spiritually. Scriptures tell us he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He got tired. He got hungry and thirsty. He slept and he ate and he drank. He had a human body. But sometimes we forget he had a human soul, a soul that felt compassion for the lost, that wept over obstinate Jerusalem, and that was overwhelmed with joy and praise to God that the Father had chosen to reveal himself to men in order to save them. And here in Gethsemane, we see that, that Jesus has a human soul that can be encompassed by grief, a human soul that can be surrounded by sorrow. See, Jesus knows exactly what's coming. Prior to Gethsemane, in, in Matthew 26, verse 2, Jesus told his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Jesus knew his death was imminent, and he knew <clears throat> that it would be agonizing. He knew about the beating, the scourging, the thorns, the nails, the blood loss, the asphyxiation. And he knew a still deeper agony awaited him. He knew that the righteous wrath of God for the sins of the world would be poured out on him. He knew what we just read, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, that he would be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But even beyond that, he also knew, Isaiah 53, 10, that it was the Father that would do the crushing. We read tonight, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Jesus knew the sky would go dark as he became cursed of God as one worthy of death, as it says in Deuteronomy. He knew that with one of his last labored breaths, he would quote Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus understood all these things, and in his humanity, he was not spared a reasonable human response. Even the reaction of his body, the physical reaction of his body, testified to the depth of his sorrow. In the parallel passage about Gethsemane and Luke, we find that the anticipation of the coming horror so stressed him that the capillaries surrounding his sweat glands were rupturing and he was sweating drops of blood. 
this human soul so weighed down with sorrow that his human body was breaking itself down under the stress. So Jesus' woe revealed to us his humanity. So, t- so too does Jesus' prayer regarding his will. I have a thought question for you. Did Jesus want to die? The answer we find here is no. Look at what he says. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will. Jesus has a will. He has a picture in his mind of what it would be like not to experience the woes that are about to be heaped upon him. And truth be told, he prefers that picture to the one that the Father has painted for him. Jesus truly does not want to go through the next 12 or so hours. He doesn't want to be arrested, mocked, scourged, and nailed to a cross. What man in his right mind would ever want such a thing? But this invites the question, how can Jesus have a will that is opposed to the Father's? A biblically sound answer can be found in the Confession of Chalcedon, which says that Jesus is truly, my, truly man of a rational soul and a body, one essence with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin. Jesus has a complete human nature, and that includes a human will. This is not to say that Jesus is not also fully God. At the same time, that same uh, confession from the Council of Chalcedon says that Jesus is one of essence with the Father as regards his divinity. So we come to understand that Jesus has two essences, two natures, human and divine. The two natures are united in one person, and at no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together in a single person. This might be difficult for us to really wrap our minds around. We can say we understand it, while at the same time not being able to fully comprehend it, and that's okay. But perhaps an analogy will help. Think about the last time you did something that you didn't want to do. Something simple. Maybe it was eating your vegetables. One part of you was saying, I don't really like the taste of these lima beans. They're kind of bitter, the texture's pasty, and they make my tongue feel like cardboard. But there's also another part of you that's saying, I know these things are packed with vitamins and minerals and fiber. They're fat-free, cholesterol-free. They're just what my body needs to stay healthy. Now, you're one person, right? But it's like you have two wills. You're not suffering from some kind of split personality disorder, but you are of two minds. At least that's the expression we use to describe what's going on figuratively, if not literally. We have only one nature, so we're different than Jesus, but we can at least feel like we have an internal conflict of wills. This is not the same as what's going on here with Jesus, but at least it helps us to think about it. See, Jesus actually has these two natures, one person, two natures, and something can be true about one nature and false about the other. For example, Jesus' divine essence is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. That's how he can say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But Jesus' human essence is localized. We never see him appearing in two places at the same time. Here in Gethsemane, we see the same thing. At once, Jesus' human essence wills to not die, to not suffer, to not face the Father's wrath. While Jesus' divine essence is always, was always, and always will be in agreement with the Father. One person, but two natures. One person, but two opinions. What I think is really important for us to understand at this point 
is that Jesus' humanity is not some sort of magic coat that he can slip off or an artificial shell that he can mystically pop out of. He is one essence with us as regards his humanity. He is like us in all respects. And he's looking at the suffering that the Father has planned for him, and he truly does, does not want to endure it. Understanding Jesus' humanity helps us to understand the reality and the gravity of what's going on here. But it also puts us at a crossroads. A real decision needs to be made. Will it be my will or your will? Jesus' will or the Father's will? This brings us to Jesus' warning. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think that for forever, when I've read this passage, I've thought that Jesus intended this as a word of instruction to his disciples. He knew they would be tested, that they would all fall away, and that they would deny him. He knows that they are weak and susceptible to sin, and that they, are, they needed God's help. So, I've always thought, he took the opportunity, even in his agony here in the garden, for a teachable moment. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And that's all true and well and good. The disciples did need to be mindful of their weakness and their need for prayer. But having meditated on these verses, I came to the realization that Jesus' warning also applies to himself. The word for flesh here is the same word that's in John 1.14, where the apostle writes, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was flesh, just like his disciples. And so when he's telling his disciples that because the flesh is weak, they need to stay alert and keep in touch with their heavenly father, he's not just pointing the finger at them. He knows that his own flesh is weak, that his human nature is subject to temptation, and that for his spirit to win out over his flesh, he also needs to watch and to pray. Jesus was fully human, and on this night of terror, he was subject to temptation. The writer to the Hebrews makes this clear. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. And Hebrews 2.17 and 18 say, He had to be made like his brothers, and he himself was tempted in that which he suffered. Again, the understanding that Jesus is at once both fully God and fully man allows us to reconcile the biblical truths that God cannot be tempted, as James tells us, and that Jesus was tempted as we are. What is true of one nature need not necessarily be true of the other. So we understand that Jesus the man could be tempted, truly tempted. At the beginning of his ministry, he was tempted by Satan. The temptation boiled down to this. Worship Satan and he'd just hand over the world to him. A sort of shortcut, right? Bypass all the suffering stuff. Who needs that anyway? And Jesus was tempted. And now, three years later, with the cross looming large, the temptation is all the more powerful. My spirit is willing, Father, but my flesh is weak. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Spare me from the shame of the cross. Spare me from the torture. Spare me from the all-consuming fire of your wrath. Also illustrating that the temptation is real. You remember what, what uh, Jesus said to Peter as the mob is arresting him in the garden. Matthew 26, 53, just a few more verses down. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, Jesus said, 
and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus had a real choice to make here. Call for the legions or go through with the original plan. And in his humanity, Jesus was tempted. And his warning to his disciples that the flesh is weak should remind us that he took on flesh so that he could be tempted. So Jesus' woe was real. He will not fa- uh, his will to not face his woe was real. And his human weakness in the face of his woe was just as real. This brings us to a true crisis point. What is Jesus going to do? And that brings me to my second point. That is that Jesus lived his human life in perfect harmony with the Father. What is Jesus going to do? The answer is that Jesus is going to live his life in perfect harmony with the Father. Jesus was fully human, yes, and Jesus lived his human life, but, uh, and Jesus lived that human life in perfect harmony with the Father. By harmony, I mean Jesus lived his life in a state of continuous agreement with his Father. The Father and the Son, they have different roles. They sing different parts, if you will. But together they work toward the same ends and they make a glorious song together. They are two separate persons whose words and works constantly support and complement and reinforce each other with the ultimate purpose of of bringing glory to God, glorifying God. I think we tend to take this for granted. We take for granted that Jesus lived in harmony with the Father because we know the scriptures teach us that Jesus and the Father are one, that Jesus is God. It might be hard for us even to imagine that they could be not in harmony. I think we fail to weigh what it means that in the incarnation, Jesus took on human form, that he added human nature, human essence to his person. God is doing something new here. And we forget that here in the garden, not only is Jesus fully God and therefore already in harmony with the Father, but he's at the same time fully man, learning obedience from the things which he suffered, as it says in Hebrews 5. And he's being perfected through that experience, as it says in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5. And this involves Jesus, the man, living out his life in perfect harmony with his heavenly Father. But Jesus had to do more than just experience woe, weakness, and this conflict of will. He had to do it all without sin. He had to do it with flawless fidelity to God's perfect standards beginning with his birth in Bethlehem and continuing through his death on the cross, Jesus had to face real human challenges, real human suffering and weakness and temptations. And he would need to do it without sin, without ever contradicting the law of God by his actions or with his words or in his heart. This could only be achieved if his human nature remained in perfect harmony with his heavenly Father. The boots, or should I say the sandals, were on the ground. And day by day, moment by moment, Jesus had to show himself to be without fault and blameless. When he was hungry, when he was tired, as he grew up as a young boy under his parents' authority, as he sat under teachers who didn't understand the scriptures as well as he did, as he lived under the unjust rule of the Roman Empire, as he daily faced challenges from the Pharisees and scribes, a rejection by his brothers, and the doubts and confusion of his disciples, even through being tempted by Satan in every circumstance, He needed to shine like the purest of lights in a dark, dark world. And now, in Gethsemane, things are getting pretty black. He's going to be betrayed by one of his own. The people are going to reject him and call for his crucifixion. Even still, even through the agony of Gethsemane and the torture of the cross, 
Jesus would need to remain in perfect harmony, in perfect sync, step by step with his heavenly Father. And this Jesus did. Here in Gethsemane, we see this demonstrated in three ways. Three demonstrations of his harmony with the Father in the midst of his human woes and weakness. First, Jesus demonstrated his harmony with the Father through prayer. Maybe the most obvious one. Jesus is confronted with the weakness of his humanity. His soul is surrounded with sorrow. His body is breaking under the stress. And his will is sorely tempted to bail out on God's plan. And what does he do? He gathers together his closest friends and he asks them to pray. And then he goes off by himself and falls on his face in prayer. He prayed for at least an hour. We really don't know much of what he said. But it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that he was praying through some of the Psalms. Any of a number of them would seem appropriate. Perhaps he prayed something like Psalm 55, where David writes, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. Like the psalmist here in Psalm 55, Jesus didn't deny his difficulties. He didn't try to keep a stiff upper lip or suck it up and just keep plugging away. But he also didn't wallow in self-pity. Instead, he lays open his soul to his friends and he asks them to pray. And he gets down on his face and he wrestles with his heavenly father. He cast his cares on the Lord because he knew that God cared for him. And he believed with his whole heart the truth of that same psalm, Psalm 55, later proclaims in verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Jesus called out to his father and his father answered him. Matthew doesn't mention it, but in his parallel account, Luke tells us that an angel appeared and strengthened Jesus. Same thing happened after Jesus had resisted Satan in the wilderness during his temptation three years before this. Angels came and they began to minister to him. As he began to contemplate walking down that painful path to Golgotha, and he recognized the weakness of his flesh, Jesus went right to his heavenly Father for the strength to walk every step in harmony with his Father's will. And his Father met him in that moment, and his Father strengthened him. In addition to prayer, we also see that Jesus maintained harmony with the Father through obedience. We see this in what little text we do have of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prayed, not as I will, but as you will. This was not something new for Jesus. He prayed just as he had taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not as I will, but your will be done. How does a man live in harmony with God? By coming to God in all humility, presenting himself as a living sacrifice, having his mind renewed so that his will becomes conformed to the will of his creator, as Paul says in Romans 12. 
Jesus looked down the road that God had planned and saw that it led places he did not want to go, but he chose the path of obedience anyway. And he told God, not what I want, but what you want. Jesus lived his entire life with this attitude. All through his ministry, he re repeatedly said things like, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also in like manner. That's John 5, 19. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do exactly as the father commanded me. And in John 12, 49 and 50, Jesus says, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus demonstrated his, his unity, his harmony with the Father. He lived his life in harmony with the Father perfectly by obeying the Father. Everything he said, everything he did was according to what the Father willed. Obedience was so important to Jesus that he said it was food to him. You remember when he skipped a meal to speak with the woman at the well? When his disciples returned from that grocery shopping trip they went on, they urged him to eat something, and he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And when the cross, the ultimate test of his submission to the Father came, beginning here at Gethsemane, Jesus perfected himself in his obedience. In the days of his flesh, <clears throat> the writer, writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. It's Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. So in the garden, this is exactly what we see. Jesus demonstrating his harmony with the Father through prayer and through obedience. And finally, we see his harmony with the Father and his faithfulness to Scripture. Jesus demonstrated a complete commitment to living his life in accordance with God's recorded word. See, Jesus knew he was on a mission. He knew that he had to obey the mission parameters, and he knew that those parameters had been laid out in the books of the law and the prophets. He knew exactly what the scriptures said. Just a sampling. Psalm 69.9 says that zeal for his father's house would consume him. So Jesus purged the temple. Isaiah 9.1 and 2 says that, the, that Galilee of the Gentiles would see a great light. So Jesus settled in Capernaum. Daniel 7 refers to Jesus as the Son of Man, and Jesus used that title. Zechariah 9.9 says that Jesus was Jerusalem's true king who would ride in humble and mounted on the foal of a donkey. And so that's just what Jesus did. And he knew that he would be that suffering servant of Isaiah 53, despised and disrespected by the people. So he determined to go to, to set his face toward Jerusalem. And he never backed down when he was confronted by the elders and chief priests and scribes, even though it, he knew it meant trouble. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus maintained that harmony with the Father by accomplishing the Scriptures. And having lived his life in perfect harmony, he lived that that way until the end. He didn't deviate one iota from God's Word. In the garden, he also knew. Psalm 41.9 says that his close friend in whom he trusted, who ate his bread, would betray him. And so when they came that night to arrest him in the garden, Peter pulled out his sword, you remember? Tries to free Jesus. What does Jesus say? Put your sword back in its place. How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? The Scriptures were the rudder that directed the ship of Jesus' life. The Bible was the script that Jesus memorized and recited and acted out. The Word of God was Jesus' playbook, His instruction manual, His marching orders, His blueprint. And He faithfully followed God's every direction. Jesus the man studied his scriptures and I just had to think that when he came to Psalm 139.16 where it says, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. I have to think that to Jesus these words were more than just a statement of God's omniscience, God's knowledge of all things past, present, and future. I have to think that to Jesus these words were a guiding principle for his life that God had already written in his book hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus was born, the plan for Jesus' life. Jesus the man lived his life in perfect harmony with the Father. He kept the lines of communication open in prayer. He submitted to the Father's will and obedience, and he remained faithful to the Scriptures. That brings us to our third point. So Jesus was fully human. He lived that fully human life in perfect harmony with the Father. But the scriptures tell us more. They tell us that Jesus lived this life of harmony with the Father from his heart. What I mean by this is that Jesus' harmony with the Father was sincere. His motives were pure. Why did Jesus pray? Why did he submit to the, to the Father's will? Why did he stay faithful to God's word? It was because he truly loved his Father. It was because he truly was humble in heart. Jesus truly had a deep reverence and awe for his heavenly Father. And this love, this humility, this reverence permeated Jesus' life and his teachings. Think about Jesus' prayer life. Why did Jesus pray? Do you ever think, even for one moment, that he prayed because he felt obligated to perform a religious ritual? Did he need to be prodded or encouraged to pray? Did he set up a system where somebody would blow a horn or ring a bell five times a day to remind him to bow down before his God? Do you think that he came up with a line, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, because he thought that by repeating it, it would be a way to earn merit points with God? No way, right? Jesus prayed, prayed because he loved the Father. He wanted and needed to spend time communicating with the Father. And he was strengthened and comforted by the Father's presence in prayer. When he was asked what was the most important commandment, Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Loving God was the first and most important thing for Jesus. And the love was reciprocal. When the Father spoke of Jesus from heaven at Jesus' baptism, he made it clear that he loved Jesus. This is my beloved Son, God says. 
In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays for the unity of his disciples, that they would all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And that, that inness, that unity, is evidence of mutual love. I in them and you in me, praise Jesus, that they may be perfected in unity so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The unity, the harmony, flows out of a love relationship. Here in the garden, Jesus is praying because he's hurting. But he's coming to his Father because he loves him. He comes expressing both his love for the Father and his need for the Father's love. There's an openness, an honesty, if you will, even in those few words that we have. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. An open, openness and honesty that reveals an intimacy of relationship. Jesus knows he can ask anything of his Father. At the same time, he knows he will do whatever the Father asks, asks of him. As he prays, yet not I will, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus comes in prayer to lay his burdens at the feet of his Father who loves him. And at the same time, he comes in prayer to affirm his full devotion to the Father and submission of his will to the Father's will. But the communication is all predicated on the basis of a love relationship. Jesus' harmony with the Father flows out of that love. Jesus' obedience, too, was based on love. For Jesus, love and obedience were very tightly linked. If you loved, you obeyed. If you obeyed, you loved. He taught his disciples, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If I could rephrase that, what he's saying is circular, but that's okay. If you abide in God, if you love and live in him, you obey him. And if you obey him, you abide in him. You live in him and love him. Sincere obedience is motivated by and evidence of love. Harmony with God is a result of and proof of sincerity of affection for God. Jesus said that his obedience to the Father flowed out of their mutual love. <clears throat> but so that the world may know that I love the Father, Jesus said, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. His obedience was the proof, the evidence, the demonstration, and the result and the logical outworking of his love for the Father and the Father's love for him. So Jesus' life of harmony with God is driven by love. But here in the garden we also see it's driven by humility, a deep and profound humility. Think about what the Father asked Jesus to do when he sent him into the world. He's asking Jesus to set aside his prerogatives as God, his rights, his glory, as the one through whom and for whom all things were created. He set aside everything to take on human form, to submit to human parents, and struggle through human frailties, and endure human temptations, and finally to suffer a human death, worse than that, the death of a shamed criminal. Did he want to do all this? I think not. But he did it. And he didn't do it out of a selfish desire to gain something for himself. He didn't do it out of pride so that he could boast in himself. He wasn't looking out for his own interests. He said, what did he say? My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so when Jesus said, not as I will, but as you will, it was from a sincere desire to magnify his Father, to see his Father's name glorified. This is the definition of humility. In that amazing text in Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Philippians 2, 6. Here we see Jesus is equal to the Father in substance, in power, in knowledge, in wisdom, yet he did not consider that status something to hold on to. Instead, when the Father sent him into the world, what did Jesus do? He emptied himself, Paul goes on to say, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. You think for a moment that he did this under threat or that the Father had his hand raised to strike Jesus down if Jesus refused? Or that Jesus said, hey, wait a minute, I'm God too, you know. You want me to do what? Not a chance. That's not the picture we're given at all. Jesus willingly humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He regarded the Father's will, the Father's plan, the Father's glory, the Father himself as more important than himself. And so he submitted to the Father's will. So how does this all apply to us? I think we can summarize the application here in a simple phrase that Jesus calls you to enter into that harmony with him and his Father. First, we need to recognize that because Jesus was fully human, because he lived his human life in harmony with the Father, because he lived his life of harmony from the heart, because all these things are true, He was uniquely qualified to take our place on the cross, to take the punishment for our sins, to be that propitiating sacrifice that makes us acceptable in the Father's eyes. Jesus had to be fully human. He had to be made like his brothers, had to be tempted so that he was able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And Jesus had to live his human life in perfect harmony with God. One slip, one step off the path, and his qualifications would have been ruined. The plan of God thwarted promise of the scriptures broken and Jesus had to live that life of harmony with sincerity as well how could he invite us to share the love and the unity how could he call us to enter into a harmony that that wasn't authentic how could we enter into something that actually didn't really exist after all but Jesus did become a man he did live his life in perfect harmony with the father and he did live that life with sincerity from his heart and so that harmony is real That unity, capital U, unity, is real. That love, capital L, love, it's real. And he calls us to enter into it. If you're here tonight and you haven't entered into it, Jesus' call to you is clear. You must be born again. You need to have his spirit enter into you and make you a new person from the inside out. He wants to transform you, to make you like he is, someone who loves God from a sincere and humble heart. He can make that happen for you. He can make your heart pure. and He can fill it with his love. He can make you humble like Jesus and obedient like Jesus. You can't do it yourself. None of us can. But the power of God at work in you can do it. And what he says to you tonight is, recognize your sinful state. Recognize that you are not living in harmony with me. 
recognize that you need me to cleanse you, to forgive you, so that I can enter into you and you can enter into me and you can live in, in harmony with me and my Father. Confess your need for me. Humble yourself before me. Believe in me. And behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will, will dine with him and he with me. If you hear him calling you into harmony with him tonight, respond to him, receive him, trusting in him to do all that is necessary to reconcile you to him. And if you have entered into harmony with the Lord, your right response should be at least twofold. First, fall down in worship with thank and thanks fall down in worship and thanksgiving. How great is our Savior? How great is Jesus our high priest? Because he humbled himself and sought his Father's glory. <clears throat> we have we have <clears throat> sorry, we have entered into that glory, and one day we will be with him in all his splendor and majesty. We are welcomed before his throne now, and we will be welcomed for all eternity. Because Jesus loved the Father and obeyed his commands, his righteousness has been imputed to us, and we have been granted the right to be called his sons and his daughters. And he is continuing his work even now, even now making us like him. Tonight, let us remember what he did. He became fully human. He lived his life in harmony with the Father. And he did it from the heart. And he did it so that we could enter into that harmony. And second, let us also come away with a new understanding of what it means for us to be in harmony with God. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Following after him, living in harmony with him. It's a glorious road, but it's not an easy one. We need to deny ourselves, he says, humble ourselves, submit to the Father's will as he did, serve from the heart as he did. We need to take up our cross, endure trials, temptations, face our weaknesses, do things we don't want to do, just as he did. Our woes, be they large or small, it will beset us. Our flesh will be weak and the temptations will be real. And our wills may seek to lead us in a direction different from God's will. What are we to do? Pick up that cross whatever it is, and follow him. Follow his example. Strive to live in harmony with the Father. Come earnestly to the Father in prayer. Obey the Father. Do what he wants you to do. And hold faithful to his word. It tells you exactly what he wants you to do. And above all, soften your heart before him so that you live that life of harmony from the heart. Do all things as Paul instructs Timothy, with love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Make it the prayer of your heart that God would keep perfecting that transformation which he has begun in you and that he might continually be filling you with his spirit so that you might truly have that attitude in your heart which was also in Christ Jesus. So that when you are grieved, when you are tempted, when you are weak, you will be able to pray from the heart not as I will, Father, but as you will. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for what you have done in sending Jesus. Lord, it goes beyond our ability to comprehend that you would take on flesh. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you that you did that for us. You did it to make a way so that we could enter into harmony with you. We thank you, Jesus, that you lived your life in perfect harmony with your Father so that you could be that pure and spotless, blameless Lamb of God that takes away our sin. We thank you, Jesus, that you lived that life from your heart with sincerity. Father, I pray that you would Help us to do that, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might love you sincerely, humble ourselves before you and each other in sincer- all sincerity, that we might obey you, Lord, and remain faithful to your word in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.